Hi, and welcome to another episode of Cycling Talk Podcast with me, Georgia Mahoney. You can find my podcast on Instagram and Facebook at cycling.talk.podcast and on Twitter at cycling underscore talk. You can find all my episodes on Spotify, Acast, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, my Buzzsprout website and all the usual podcast places. In this episode, I'm joined by Director Sportif of EF Education Nippo, Tom Southam. Tom has been a pro rider and is now a DS, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about his time in both. Thank you for joining me today, Tom. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Um, nice to be here. Um, I'm obviously a way away over in Australia where we're not really locked down um, at the moment. Not at all. Um, so it's, uh, yeah kind of nice to touch base with the UK every mm-hmm. now and again. Um, I guess you guys have got a different circumstances over there at the moment. Yeah. How do you feel about travelling to Europe with the situations in Europe compared to the situations in Australia? Um, that's a good question. This year is going to be quite tough um, because I've got um, my wife, who's Australian, she travels with mm-hmm. me. I've got a 18-month-year-old daughter. Um, so... Uh, it's, it's it's quite difficult to go from a quite a safe, comfortable environment that we're currently in back to um, back to Europe where, you know, the numbers are high mm. and at best you can't get locked down and we also don't want the risk of, you know, any infection. Um, yeah. So this is going to be quite hard. With the team, we're going to try and delay my arrival in Europe for as late as, as possible. Um, so um, we can... Mum and wife will probably come a little bit later than me, um, so we can kind of make the most of, of being here and stay safe, really. So what's your first memory of being on a bike? Uh, my very first memory, I can actually remember, I can like, I remember learning to ride a bike um, mm-hmm. with my dad. And I, I, we, we lived in Camborne down, like in a farmhouse quite quite a way away from anywhere. I remember that the... the the drive to the house was quite um, full of potholes and so on and so forth. I remember it, it taking me quite a while to get to learn how to ride and to get it right. And I think there was a reflector missing from one of the pedals and my dad replaced it to balance it out with a, a key and he sellotaped it on. And once he did that, I don't know why, I, it, I, I don't think it actually solved the issue, but um, in my head, I, I think it, I thought it did. In there. So that was my very, very first moment. I, I can't tell you how old I would have been. I would, I think I must have been five or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was pre-balanced bike, so no stabilizers, straight in um, on a BMX. And do you remember the first bike that you were really excited about? Um, I was thinking about this. I mean, my, my first road bike was uh, really exciting for me. So when I was a kid, I nagged my parents for ages to get me a mountain bike um, because that was what was cool. And then I sort of decided that I wanted to ride on a road bike. And by that point, mum and dad had kind of bought me a lot of stuff for a lot of different things that I'd tried and given up quite quickly. And dad's response was, well, you have to buy it for yourself. Um, so I found one in a newspaper and I, I sold my um, computer console to go and buy it. Um, I got it. And I remember the first ride I did on it, going from fat mountain bike tires to road tires was uh, like so exciting um never matched i don't think that excitement of the first like road bike ride and that was i think probably the only bike i've ever paid for so (laughs) that was a pretty exciting one (laughs) yeah 
Uh, so what were some of the sports that you did as a kid other than cycling? So I did um, running at school. Um, mm-hmm. I played all the like football, rugby and so on and so forth, all the school sports. Um, and outside of school, I uh, rode in gig boats and flash boats. So mm-hmm. sea, yeah, rowing in the sea in Cornwall in like a fixed seat boat, um, which mm-hmm. was fun. Oh, that sounds cool. So when you got into cycling, did you join a local club or team? Um, so I joined uh, the Penzance Wheelers, um, mm-hmm. which um, at the time was a fairly, uh, I don't know how to put this, but I, I, mean, I was the youngest person there by about 25 years, I would say. When I turned up. <laughs> cycling clubs then were more for, you know, guys who rode a few time trials, um, raced a bit, there wasn't much youth. There, there was nobody at that end of Cornwall. I had one friend who was two years older than me and we were the only two guys at that end of Cornwall who rode bikes. Um, I think it was good for me because outside of my social circle at school, I was interacting with much older people and, and that's always great for a youngster. Yeah. Um, and it was good for me as a cyclist because everybody was naturally stronger than me because I was you know, 12 years old or I think, yeah, I was 12. And so I... I got my head kicked in quite a lot. I, I think I mean, it would never happen now, but the, one of the first, the sec, maybe the second or third rides I did, I just got dropped because the club used to start riding fast on the way home. And mm-hmm. after six miles or something, I got dropped and just got left. I had no idea where I was. <laughs> um, and I, I had to, like, I just kind of made my way home. I remember getting home with my dad being pretty cross because he'd been looking for me. And uh, I didn't think anything of it, but it was just like, now I think, now, now as, a, as a parent, I look at it and go, these guys just left me sort of in the wilderness. So when did you get into racing and do you remember your first race? So I, yes, I do. I, I do because I came dead last. Um, oh no. I, it, it wasn't that bad. So I won, I think I won five pounds for coming last. There were two of us, um, myself and a guy who I still to this day know. He also now lives in Australia. And we were, back then the under 16 was Anybody under 16 went in the same race. So I, I remember I went to the start line and I was 12. It was, I'd been riding a bike for three or four months. And I went to Bristol in Castle Coon and there was maybe 15 or so boys under 16, but the oldest ones were maybe 15 and had, you know, big moustaches and they were growing up boys compared to me. I was just a kid. Um, and me and this other guy would drop straight away, rode around together and had a sprint at the end and he beat me but I got the five pound prize for coming last. So <laughs> yeah, I remember that very well. I recently interviewed Chris Opie, who is also from Cornwall and he talked about riding with you actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I think Chris started when I think I'm, I was, I think I'm four years or so older than Chris and Chris started when I was yeah. just about starting to move out of Cornwall. Uh, Steve Lampier as well was another one. So there's Chris Opie and Steve Lampier, um, and they were the only guys. They were still maybe sort of 15, 20 miles away from where I grew up, but it was kind of the only guys that were close. But those two are much closer because they're, I think they're a year or so apart. So they, um, but Chris was just that little bit younger than me. But he went to Holland, um, stayed with the family that I used to stay with, the same family, um, which sort of set him on his way, which was nice. Um, I mean, yeah, I still see Chris now. I rode with him last year in the summer, which was nice. It was great to see him have a, you know, 
uh, a great racing career. It was, it was really nice. So what sort of riding did you like to do? Um, when I mean, when I was when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was be a road racer. Um, and I, yeah. I, like, I just rode the road and I, I mean, Cornwall's so so hilly down at that end um like with short sharp climbs basically like all i could ever do was go out and ride on these like tough steep little climbs which actually was gave me a really good engine for repeated accelerations so when i did race i was actually i I got quite good quite quickly because i was the terrain really suited that so um a lot of riding into headwinds down in cornwall i remember um, quite often ending up in tears because I, I would set off with a tailwind and think life was great. And I was just 13, 14 years old. You don't really understand. I didn't understand how to pace my efforts or to fuel myself properly. And there was some, uh, <laughs> there were some tough days there. I remember when I was a kid and the weather was always, always bad as I remember, <laughs> but <laughs> that's probably not true. I'm actually from North Devon. So it's pretty similar for me with all the hills if nice. if I go out for a ride, I always have to come home and ride up the hill to get to my house. So it's not very fun. <laughs> no, no, but it's good for you in the long yeah. run. It does make you better. How did you manage your education around your training and racing? Um, that didn't really become much of an, um, a, an issue until I was doing my A-levels, I think. So, so yeah. um, I mean, I come from... Uh, academic-ish family so you know my father was a teacher in secondary school and my mother was a lecturer at uh, university so studying was always second nature to me um and I always had enough time to balance the two and I, I think you can definitely balance the two quite successfully when, when I came to do my A levels I was racing for Great Britain so I was going away quite a lot um yeah that was, that was a little bit harder because things get a bit more serious then but I was never put into a position where I had to sacrifice one or the other. Um, I had the idea to be a cyclist, which wouldn't involve going to university. Um, but I wanted to be sure that I had my A-levels. Should that not work out, I could always go and do it. So that was the only thing that I took a little bit more seriously. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of a typical bike rider where I was like, oh, yeah, a B will do. So I'll just kind of cruise through. With that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard that story a few times from my riders. <laughs> So growing up in Cornwall, you must have done a lot of travelling. Who was supporting you? Um, that was, um, I was very lucky in that my dad, who, um, I mean, he, he was sort of interested in cycling, but he really got into it when I started getting into it. He, he drove me um, and my man, my man dad supported me. Dad would teach all week and then on Friday we would leave. I would get home from school, he would get home from school and we would leave, drive up to my grandparents' house in Bristol and then go for either to a race in, in Bristol or sometimes we'd drive as far as Eastway, which was the other side of London, um, wow. and go and do a 30-minute 30 30 race. And then we'd drive all the way home on Sunday night, um, which was like seven hours, I think, sometimes. But it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a really nice time to spend with my dad, I would say. Um, it, it, was, it, it was nice. It was a lot of time together, a lot of time in the car, and a, a real adventure for both of us, definitely. It must have been a pretty tiring week for you, though, with school and having to, well, especially for your dad, having to teach and then drive up to for a place for you to race and then drive back down on Sunday. 
Yeah, I mean, like when, when you're a kid, you don't quite appreciate what it is, and then you get older, and you're like, wow, that was amazing. Um, but I think I think we both enjoyed it enough, and it, it didn't really have any negative impact on my on school or anything like that. It, it was a little bit tough socially with my friends because obviously I never did anything, or I, I didn't do as much on the weekends as other people. But I, was, mm. I had I had a whole other life with 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 the people I knew from racing, and I worked out that way. Do you remember your first national race? Um, I think the first sort of national one I would have done would have probably been the national championships as an under-16, which mm-hmm. I did in my first year. Um, and that was this, like, I won the Devon and Cornwall championships because there was, I, th- I, I did a race and there was no other kid from Devon and Cornwall in it. So <laughs> I won it by default. And uh, from that, I qualified for the national championships, which was in Kent, I think. So we drove all the way to Kent, Dad and I, and I got, you know, dropped all over the place. <laughs> I, I think Wigo was in the race and was up there somewhere. Um, he's only a year older than me. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, just a lesson in going out the back. <laughs> going out the back um, I had a few of those. But. And do you remember the first time that you travelled outside of the UK to compete? Yes, I went, um, I went to a, uh, a race in Holland when I was in my first year when I was 12, I think. And or, or I was 13 by then. It was organised by English School Cycling. I don't know if that existed or not, ESCA. They did two or three trips a year where uh, they took a whole bunch of kids over and went to a, a stage race in Holland. Um, I remember that I thought, I, I was so excited about it because I was like, I, the idea of doing, there was no multi-day races in the UK and this one had, you know, international riders in it. So I was super excited, but I got there and, because we were so young, most of it was just kind of about, um, it was almost like a holiday camp bike racing on. So like we were going off and doing walks in the night and like playing games and stuff. And I was really frustrated because I just wanted to be there to race, you know. Mm. Um, and then I broke my elbow. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> not a great start. But yeah, that was my first year. And it was, it, 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 yeah, it was good fun. It was good fun. I like the idea of all the social time in that sort of event. It sounds quite nice. Yeah, it was good. And you, you were meeting, um, you know, kids from Holland and kids from Germany and people from all over. Um, mm. And you made good friends with the English kids you went with. And it was, it was really nice. How did you go from riding in Cornwall and growing up in Cornwall to being selected to represent Great Britain? Um, I can't actually remember that. I, I, I think I raced, I went, I went to Holland the first year with Esker and then I did that subsequently every year I could as an under 16. And the last race that I did, there was, um, you, you abilitated out to live, to stay with a family. It was in a place called Achterveld and you stayed for one week with a family. And when I got home from that, I, I wrote to them. My, my dad sort of said, why don't you try writing to them and asking if you could find somewhere to stay for longer. And then when I finished my exams, my GCSEs, I, I basically lined up a place in Holland where I could go and stay for the whole summer holiday until I went to college and, and race with the Dutch team because the competition was much better there. And that was successful. I did that year on year. So I, I spent quite a lot of time racing outside of the UK, which meant the first, the first year as a junior, I was kind of overlooked for um, a place in the national team non-traveling reserve for the youth olympics so i was always just sort of bubbling around there and then in my last year as a junior the funding came in 
for British Cycling with the lottery funding. And they took, I think, maybe 20 juniors to uh, Benidorm in Spain. And uh, that was the kind of selection or whatever it was for the national team. Um, and I remember, I remember the guy called me from the junior team, said, we're going on a training camp. And I just assumed it would be Wales or something. I was like, all right, great. <laughs> Yep, I'll be ready. And then he said, "Then we're going to get you, know, you need to get your flight organised." It's like flight. I think I think that was the, that was the first time I'd ever stayed in a hotel, even because we'd been on holiday with my parents, but we always camped. It was I'd been on a plane once before that when I flew to Canada for a holiday, and it was a real. Uh, it was like, wow, this is what the the national cycling team's like. Um, and Steve Cummings was there on that um, that trip, and it was that was great. And from there. Steve and I, I think we raced every every race for the national team that, that year, which was cool. It must have been such a nice and exciting experience for you. Yeah, it, it really was, um, especially at that age when we, you know, you're racing um, in World Cup races, um, effectively with guys from all over the world. Again, it's like you, you meet these the six best riders from Switzerland or America or Italy. And, you know, I'd never come across actual Italians and you at the time Italians were the best cyclists in the world and you read cycling magazines you're like wow Italians and then I remember Pozzato was my year so Pozzato was at, at those races and Cancellara was at those races and it was uh, it was really cool. So you've represented Great Britain in five world championships can you tell me about the first time? I think it's actually six. Oh really wow. I'm gonna have to get a fact check I was, I was <laughs> counting it out I did, I did junior worlds in in Verona and then I did Plouay as number 23, Zolder, um, Hamilton in Canada, and then I did Verona as a pro and Madrid as a pro. So, oh, wow. <laughs> the first one was at the, yeah, so that was at the end of that year, which was 1999, and that was, that was really cool. It was, it was the first time I'd been to Italy, and as I said, like in the, in the 90s, Italian cycling was everything. So um, went to Italy and... and saw like I mean you're in the junior event so you're quite it's a few days before the pro race I can't, I can't really remember but you got the sense of what the world championship was and all the spectators and the roads with all the you know graffiti and writing on and the flags and the banners and it was a real it, it was amazing um honestly going there for the first time I mean I went there with hopes for a top 10 finish which I think was sort of realistic based on how I performed through the year, but we had no races for, I don't know, a month or so before because the way the programme worked out with GB and it ended up being a bit of a flop, which was disappointing because that had been like such a, an amazing year for me because at the end of that, I then went on to the um, world-class performance programme, which is the equivalent of the academy now. So it, like, mm. I went from being a kid at college to going, oh, wow, I'm going to get paid to race my bike next year. Um, that world was like the, the point where it all came together and, yeah, it was uh, really cool, I have to say. That was a special one. That was the same circuit that I then did as a pro when I did it in 2000, which was kind of cool because I remember thinking when I was a junior, it's like, wow, imagine being in the you know pro race or whatever. Do you have any really memorable moments from the other five times? I mean, they're all um, memorable in their own in their own way. I, I, I'd say the actual, like the feeling of doing a world championships was always pretty special um like a few days before when you're going out and you look at the course and there's, you see all the other countries there 
And there's people you've raced all year, and because it's the end of the season as well, like there's a real sense of it being the final push. And then when it's over, you know, you see everyone afterwards and it's kind of everybody relaxes and they can be nice to each other. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say that uh, all of them were, were special. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing to be able to do. Can you tell me about some of the teams that you've ridden for? Yeah, I mean, I started off, I mean, I, I did my amateur career in Holland and France. So I started in France, went to Holland for a year and then went back to France. Um, which wasn't a great idea. Should have just stayed in France. And then I turned pro in Italy, which was also a bad idea. Um, I basically, I went to a race with the national team, the track team, and I was there and there was, there was a, te- a small Italian team there and they saw me racing and basically said, hey, how do you fancy come and do some races for us? Which seemed like a, kind of a good idea. And I, I, fa- I found the racing in Italy didn't really suit me that well. And it was quite... Uh, it's quite tough. I spent a year there and I spent two years in another sort of Italian, South African um, team, Barlow World, um, which was a bigger team. But still, um, as, a, as, as an English rider then before, you know, before, certainly before, you know, Wiggins and, and Flume and stuff, you, you were sort of seen as a second class citizen. And it was, it was quite tough to make your way in, in that environment. Um, and then from there, I came back and I raced uh, mainly for John Herity, um, who I'd known from the national team um, at Rafa Condor, which was great. It, it, that was different sort of period because up until then, I'd been, you know, really extremely focused and cycling was everything. But then when I came back and I raced in the UK, I knew that my career was going to finish and that I needed to think about doing other things. And, you know, that's when I kind of woke up to woke up to that. Um, but I mean, I, I loved racing for Rafa Condor. That was that was super cool. It was great, fun team. How did you find being away from home? Um, I mean, I, I've always been totally fine with it. Honestly, um, I, I think coming from coming from Cornwall, I've always known that to do what I want to do, I had to be out of the house. So once I finished sort of junior racing, when I was driving up and down with my dad every weekend, from then on, it was always long stints abroad or away going to Holland on my own and then with the junior team and then I spent those years in France and Holland and Italy and it feels like I've always been away so for me I I, I don't mind it honestly. You've ridden in a number of Tour of Britain events how has the event changed over the years? Um, I'd say the most dramatic change was from the first year which was um that race verged on disaster a few times. I remember we were in Blackpool and um, we were going down a road in the middle of the race with cars on, going either way and seeing riders coming from the right and from the left because people have been sent the wrong way. And there were bike riders all over Blackpool. So oh, no. <laughs> foreign riders, um, British riders, people everywhere, motorcycle escorts got lost. And at the finish, coming to the finish of the stage, I think the first sort of 30 riders went the wrong way and with 200 metres to go or something. And the guy who was basically, you know, 31st on the stage. Um, That's that not very first, good. No, it, that was, it was the first time, I think, in quite a few years that professional racing had come to the UK. So it was a, a bit of a, a, not a shock, but the organisers had to take a step up. And I mean, since then, the events I've done are, are, are like a, a night and day. It's, you know, 
fully professional. Everybody likes coming to it. Yeah, it's the fields got stronger and stronger um, because I think then they had a few pro teams, but it, it wasn't it wasn't like it is now. So yeah, that's that's come a long way. I think you actually finished a race like a Tour of Britain stage near me in Biddeford, but I don't actually remember it. I was really really little. I've been doing a few stages in Devon, and the Devon stages were always really good. Um, when I was DS there, we had John Tien and Locke, who um, was from Devon, and he had a few really good days um, in the hills there, which was great. How did you find the transition from racing to life after racing? Um, I would say, it, I mean, it, it is quite tough, even when you think you're very well prepared for it. Stopping something you've done with so much energy and commitment and sort of passion for such a long time is, is always difficult. And then there's the sort of kind of, um, you know, what do you do next? Um, it, it can be a bit odd when, when you go cycling, you, you always have goals and like it's, it works in, it's like you build up to a big event and then you have a bit of downtime and build up again. And you're always on a trajectory when you go into like not normal life, but, life can be a lot more sort of a level playing field which which can be a bit of a surprise personally I think um, I had a clear idea of what I wanted to do at the time and that was good and I had a lot of opportunities that came my way um, after cycling um, I mean through cycling admittedly but yeah it, it was definitely something I think I could have prepared for better um, and I actually went to the second team that I was a DS at Drapak Professional Cycling who I actually rode for at some point the philosophy of the Michael who put the team together was about making athletes aware that their career would finish um, and he had a holistic mm. approach to that um, and so working with Drapak as well really opened my eyes to how much more time people should spend realising that there will be a life after cycling no matter sort of how good you are even if you make all your money you kind of have to do something that's, uh, that, that, that's been eye-opening I'd say. Do you actually remember your last race and did you know that it was going to be your last race? Um, I don't remember what my actual last race was for the team. The last race that I did um, sort of non-officially was a, a race, a mountain bike relay race at the end of my last year with um, some friends in a, in a team of four, which was kind of like a end of end of career type thing um, which was nice it was a nice way to finish um, although we got second so once you sort of retired from racing you became a press officer with your the team that you had been riding for um, Rafa Condor Sharp what did that job involve um, so that was kind of a little bit the fact that I was still working on my masters for, for writing mm-hmm. so and a little bit the fact that the manager of the team, John Herity, was basically just <laughs> making a job for me, I think. Um, I mean, things were pretty good in UK racing then, so teams had good budgets, so Refcon had a good budget. So um, I had a job as press officer and sort of assistant sports director. And basically, I, I it wasn't so much in the social media sphere as like putting together the, the press releases and the articles, yeah. um, creating the, the stuff for the website. It was much more focused on the actual... Um, slightly longer written stuff. I mean, Instagram wasn't around then. Yeah. So uh, social media was a little less 
important and a little less sort of reactive. Um, I mean, I, I see the jobs that the press officers do now in my team now, and it's 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 really different to that. Um, like how much coordination they have to put into that kind of um, that, that that sort of stuff. It didn't really involve that sort of bigger like ideas for things we were going to do, relationships with people in the press, um, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I'd say that's a job that's changed quite a bit. Yeah, it must have changed, and obviously it would be very different now because you would have stuff to do with social media a bit more. So you spoke about you having a master's degree in professional writing. Can you tell me about when you got that? So, um, yeah, I mean, I, like I started writing when I was like for the British cycling website when I was 18 or 19, went onto the national team. And I did a race in um, Montenegro, um, so just by Serbia. And again, John Herity was like, "You should, you should write this up for the for the website." And so I wrote it, and I got good feedback. And then I, I ended up writing like a sort of column for the, the British Cycling website for a few quite a few years, and it was well received. And then like, w- when you do things and you get good feedback, it it, it makes you do it more. And yeah you feel like you're good at it and I got a lot of encouragement and then um my mum came across when she as I said she was lecturing at university she came across correspondence course um at her uni and said hey you should have a look at doing this um and I was, I was still racing at the time but I knew that I was going to do something else afterwards and so I, I went along and um I th- I, actually, no, I've done quite a bit for magazines by the time I went to go and apply for the Masters because I, I went from writing on websites to writing for, I did quite a lot of writing for Rafa, the company, um, and then obviously the team, and then Lula, which was Rafa's magazine at the time, and then all sorts of different cycling magazines. And yeah, it, it was kind of like a, it felt like a natural thing to do. It was correspondence course, so it was two years of, of, of study. Um, it was really good. It, I, I I enjoyed doing it, and I think uh, it led me on to some really good things. Charlie's book, basically, um, you know, it, it, it took me there, um, and I still right now um, to this day. Yeah. So, can you tell me about the book and what inspired you to co-write it? Yeah. So, I mean, I'd, I'd lived with Charlie when I was racing as a pro in Italy. Um, I'd known him for quite a long time, and. Uh, I, th- I think what happened was somebody, an agent came with an idea to Charlie and said, hey, how about you do a book about being a domestic? Because the books, it's all about being a guy who doesn't win, but who sacrifices himself for the, for the team and mm. why that kind of works in cycling, that sort of dynamic. And Charlie, who I was in touch with, thought of me um, because he didn't want to write it himself. And to be honest, Charlie could have done a great job because he's like, he can write really well, but... He didn't have the time or inclination to do it. And he said, how do you fancy doing it? And uh, I jumped at the chance because I, I really wanted to write a book. Um, and it gave me the story um, to do it. And as well, because I've got such a good relationship with Charlie, that it, it gave me a lot more freedom than a normal kind of co-writer would have um, in, in, in that case. So and that was, uh, that was uh, quite a long time ago now. So I need to pull my finger out and do another book soon um yeah that was uh that, that, that was good it was it was hard work to do it i think it was about 
14 months it took me. So it's, it's quite a long, long process. But it was the first one, and I was learning how to do it myself. Um, so happy with the end result, I think. So we're now sort of moving on to the director sportif side of the podcast. So how did you become a director sportif? Um, by accident, <laughs> I think. Um, so I, I took that job as press officer with Rafa Condor. Um, John also wanted me to cover some races as a sports director um, because Rafa Condor had quite a busy program and they, he couldn't cover everything. I think he wanted somebody that he could, you know, he knew and he could trust. And I did a few races in the first year and the second year. No, my first race, that's, that's right. The first race I got given was the Tour of Korea. Um, which I took a team to and we won um, with Mike Cooming, which mm-hmm. was pretty cool. Um, and I was happy for my DS career to finish there. One, one race, one win, that would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but John sent me back the next year to the Tour Career, Amateur Japan, and, and we won again. And this was with Hugh Carthy this time. Um, and then I started to think, hey, I actually uh, can do okay at this. Um, and I enjoyed it. I still enjoy being around the team, you know, because um, when when we talked about transition earlier, one of the things that you find quite hard when you've been in like a, a real close-knit team environment is when you stop racing and that disappears away from you. Instantly, when I stopped racing, I actually like took up uh, um, rowing um, in, in Bristol just to kind of get back into that sense of being in a team again. And then I kind of realised, actually, I, I love being in a team environment. So my role now as a DS... It's, you're not in the team in the same way that you are when you're a rider because you are that little bit removed. And, and there are moments when you get on the bus after a race and everybody's tired and you just you have to just wait a little bit before you kind of join into the conversation because it's there's a bond that they have that you aren't in. I like being in a team. And so um, I, I enjoyed DSing. And then we did a few races with Rafa Condor, which, um, one of which was Colorado Classic in the um, America, where mm-hmm. he came across the Drapak team, um, and a good friend of mine, Darren Lapthorn, was racing there. And he basically said, You should see if there's a job going here, kind of thing. And then I got in touch with them. And I mean, their the team was based in Melbourne, and that obviously suited me because my wife was from here. So we kind of jumped when the chance came to, to join that team, which was kind of cool. Can you tell me more about what the role involves? It's pretty diverse. Um, I mean, I think when I did the job at the, the lower tier with Rafa Condor, when you're a continental team, you basically go to a race with three staff. So you know, you've got one mechanic, one, one soigneur, and as a DS, you could be, end up doing anything from the, the manager's meeting to helping out, you know, filling the cars up, helping with the laundry, all sorts of like small jobs, and, as well as the in-race stuff which is the yeah. tactic with the riders and so on and so forth but then as you go up up through the sort of tiers of cycling your job becomes more specified so now it's quite focused my real role is kind of being responsible for the performance of the team at the race so our head sports director will send me to a race with a team that the team has agreed on is the best one for the race and then it will be my responsibility to come up with the tactics to deliver those to the riders um, and make sure they all buy into the, the team plan um, and you know support them in the race in the car also manage the staff 
and you know once you get to sort of the tour de france we've got you know 25 30 people working alongside the riders and they all need to be kind of don't need to be but like my role is to manage that that all functions at its best how many riders do you usually work with so our team has 30 this year um and each sports six sports directors and each one has a different group of riders that they're in contact with um so i've got six riders who i is my sort of group that i deal with on a regular basis and am in contact with then when we go to races we have either seven in the one day races or eight in the grand tours do you like being in the team car uh yes and no it's they can be very long days um some mm-hmm. day five six hours in the car yeah. that's just not fun to sit in a, a seat for that long um but they you know you are really in the action too um and a, and a lot happens and there's a lot to think about there's a lot going on obviously in the car now these days we've got you know ipads with the race route and we've got weather information coming in and we've got tv in the car and we've got um uh, you know, quite a lot of the time we've got other people to drive the car when we're trying to manage the race because obviously there's a lot of stuff going on at once. And there's a lot to think about. So I think I do, yeah. I think I, I, I do. It just uh, doesn't always feel like it. Yeah, it must be so cool to sort of be like there in the middle of the race, but you're not racing. But then I guess there's a, you must be so nervous at some points because you want the team to do well and it's, must be a weird time in the car sometimes. Yeah, because you also have to accept that you can you can only do so much. And yeah, and they're not robots, and you're not playing PlayStation. It's you've given them all that you can give them, and, and you have to stop yourself sometimes going too far because it's it's very easy to to you know have a better idea from where I sit, but it's you don't really know everything that's happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, it's kind of like a performance in that you have to know when to stop yourself saying things, you know, have to know when you should say things. Um, and uh, it, ta- it takes a lot to learn to, to get it good. And I think, I think it's something you're always working on making better. So what if somebody on the team crashes? What's the sort of procedure that you go through when you're in the car? Sometimes I have a doctor with me in my car, mm-hmm. uh, which is like a big relief. Normally we'll, we'll get to the crash and we so there's obviously there's 22, 25 cars in the convoy. First things first, we have to find out when there is a crash call in the radio, if we're down, if there is someone. The mechanic normally takes the bike, the spare bike, instantly to go to, go to them. Um, and, and the doctor will go as well to the rider. And then we assess, you know, are we going to have to stay here with this rider and get the second car to go and look after the guys who are still racing? Mm-hmm. Um, do we have to swap um, and the second car looks after this rider and we go back to the race. Is it a mechanical issue? Is it um, a medical issue? Does the rider have to abandon? So there's, there's quite a lot to deal with and that all happens quite quickly and it's, 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 it can be really nasty when there is a crash. You know, you do get to people first when they're really quite hurt and, and they're shocked and angry and um, it, it can be quite an unpleasant situation. Nobody wants to see anybody on the floor, you know, leading or, or, or whatever so it's, it's one of definitely one of the worst parts of the job so when we watch on tv everybody in the car seems to be working so fast w- were you there when Sergio Higuita crashed 
so when Sergio crashed, I was actually about, I would say, five or 600 meters in front of the race. At the tour, they generally, so I was in the second team car. They generally have one, the second cars go in front of the race to go behind the breakaway when it goes. Um, and I was ahead and watching, I was parked waiting for the race to come and I was watching, I saw the crash on TV. So I stayed where I was and Charlie, who was in the other car, was helping Sergio. So I drove straight in behind the bunch um, and Charlie was, was, was dealing with that issue. So it was one of those situations where you have to improvise quite quickly um, and, and work out the best solution that's going to make sure all the riders are covered um, if, if they have another issue um, and that the person who's down gets the thing. Um, that didn't work out there. So as we mentioned, you are the DS of EF Education. How did you get the role with the team? Um, so I, I worked for Drop Act for two years and they, um, at the time it was Cannondale sponsored what is now EF. It was just called Cannondale and they were looking for a co-sponsor and they um, got in touch with uh, Michael Drapak and Michael basically co-sponsored that team. And I went across when they joined up, which was kind of, um, it felt quite natural for me because I mean, I've known Charlie for, Charlie was already there and I've known him for quite a long time. Um, So it was kind of a nice fit. Um, It all sort of came together. Um, And then what was then Cannondale Drapak became EF Drapak and now EF EF Education Nipo. Better get it right. New name. So there seems to be some great characters in the team. Do you enjoy working with the riders? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a team that I would, you know, I always looked at from you know, the outside and thought that would be a team that I'd like to work in. Um, we've got a lot of different types of characters in the team who, um, you know, come from, I guess, a similar sort of world to me. Um, and so it's quite easy for me to relate to a lot of the guys in the team. And yeah, I, I get along with you know um, almost everybody. Well, I think everybody. So no, it's it's great. How do you find the different languages, cultures, and personalities of the people in the team? Yeah, I mean that can be quite uh, diverse. Um, I, mean, I speak um, French and Italian fluently, and I'm trying to learn a bit of Spanish um, because we've obviously got some South American riders now and. It, it really does help if, if if you can make the effort to understand people on a on the best possible level you can. Um, I think English is our our common language in the team, so <laughs> most people have enough English that we can talk about the race and we can talk about what we're doing. But I think to go that next step to build real relationships with the riders, then it's helpful to kind of try and have a bit more in depth conversation. Um, and I mean, I, I find it fascinating to meet these guys with like really, really different backgrounds to my own, you know, guys have grown up in Colombia or wherever, all over the world. And yeah, it just keeps, it keeps opening your eyes. I think when I, when we were at Drapak, it was a very monocultural team. So it was all Australians, um, apart yeah. from one or two guys. So that was kind of very much like everybody was the same. In the effort, it's, it's a much bigger team and not just the riders, but the staff as well, you know, um, it's it's really interesting, you know, when you sit down with a mechanic from Portugal and chat about what it has on his barbecue or whatever. It's uh, it's it's great. 
<laughs> I love watching EF ride and I think they're really inspiring and in how I love how unique not just they are but also the whole team is cool yeah just an interesting question did you like the palace kit for the jury yeah i i I thought it was really cool i i I really liked it it's uh it's i I still find amazing how much sort of attention it got because yeah it, it was really different but it's 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 actually such a small thing, but it's it seems so incredibly radical. They did a great job as well with the bikes um, and and all the kit, and nobody had seen it, so they kept it under wraps really well. Which it sounds like nothing, but that's really hard to do because you've got to put the stickers on the bikes, the stickers on the cars, stickers on the bus. Everybody's got to get the kit, and I think they ended up with the bikes. They were riding them the days before the race, and so they had the new paint underneath. They had to put stickers of the old paint over the top so no one could see. And so it was like this, it, it, it was really well done. And then obviously it made a massive impact. And then to back it up, the guys raced with like just a really cool, I think a great atmosphere and a great spirit in that race. And they were really successful and they were, you know, successful early and they were winning. And I imagine that if I was looking from the outside, that would be like, wow, that's the team that I want to, be in or I want to wait for you know that that was it, it was cool I think it was quite controversial but I really liked it and I think a lot of my family liked it as well cool that's good news the old duck kid Mitch Docker has been on the podcast and I think he said that he was a bit disappointed that he didn't actually get to ride that kit <laughs> yeah it was uh I mean, I think Mitch was, was was disappointed that he missed out riding the Giro anyway. Yeah. Obviously. Um, but that was like a, I could see that would be a double blow, you know. Obviously, you don't mm-hmm. ride the race, you don't get the kit. And if you didn't get the kit, you uh, you really missed out. So would have gone well with his mullet. <laughs> Do you remember your first Grand Tour as a DS? Uh, yes, it was the 2017 Tour de France. Um and we came second, um, which was uh, ridiculous because every, every, everything went perfectly. Yeah. And it does go perfectly. I remember Charlie and Andres, the directors of the race, just saying, hey, just, just to let you know, it doesn't always work like this. Because we won a stage in the first week, we had the mountains jersey and Taylor was going well and like things were just going, day after day were going great. So, and there was no stress because a, a big part, a big thing with the tour is all of the pressure that comes on. But when you're instantly doing well, that didn't exist, so it was very different. But it was it was uh, it was good. It's good race. How do you view cycling as a DS? Is it different from how you viewed it as a rider? Uh, yeah, completely. Um, I, I look back now through my eyes now and myself as a rider, and it's, just, it's very frustrating to see how many mistakes you made so easily. Um, because n- as a DS, you have much you have an overall vision over what's happening and you can see the way races work and it all seems quite straightforward. When you're a rider, I think it seems more complex than it is sometimes. Um, a lot of the time just because you're really tired um, and not have enough sugar in your brain. Um, but you definitely see it with, with, with different eyes as a DS. But it's good to remember, you know, like you have to relate with the riders. So you, you have to understand a lot what they're thinking, which is... Uh, also important to the role 
You started racing in the 90s and now it's 2021. How has the sport changed over time? I, I find it so shocking when I, I see that question. It's like, wow, such a long time. Um, it's, it, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, it's changed a lot, a lot, a lot. To start with, I think it's a much, much less Eurocentric. I mean, when I started racing, there were just might have been three or four or five, you know, English professionals. And there was one American team, Mosarola. And it was a real rarity to have English-speaking people in the sport. The official language of the sport was French. And if you didn't speak French, you spoke Italian. You can go to a team, like nowadays, you can go to a team and not speak a word of a foreign language. And, and it's not a big issue. Um, back then, it was, it, was, it was completely the other way around. It was, uh, I think it's much more professional now, you know, with people's salaries and the way riders are looked after. I think riders are, are generally fitter um, in terms of it, you know, they get better understanding of their bodies and what they're doing and better treatments and better support. And the equipment's much, much better and plays a bigger role in winning or losing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's a very, very different sport. I, I think, I don't think there are any, you know, I wouldn't say we're worse off or anything like that. I think on the whole, actually, everybody's better off for it. Um, it's just different. I mean, things change and they evolve and we can't try and hang on to the past because even if, if things are different now from what they were in the 90s, then things were different in the 90s from what they were in the 70s. So it's, it's always changing. Where do you see the future of cycling? Um, I think, I, I think the, the margins are going to keep shrinking between, you know, uh, between the riders as, as the level keeps rising. Um, and I wonder if... I wonder if, like, the way the cycling world's having to deal with the pandemic now is going to mean that the calendar changes to to adapt and people realise actually we could have a calendar that's slightly different where we have, you know, things in a different order or, or races work in a, in a different way. I think it could be an interesting sort of point where things start to change now post-pandemic. And it seems to be going the way where it's going to get harder to for, harder for smaller teams to win without a salary cap. Um, of any sort in cycling there's going to be I think four teams that kind of have much more than everybody else and it might kind of slip into that sort of Premier League um, situation where you have the same the same guys winning all the time yeah I totally agree with that because for for a smaller team it's a lot harder to get the same equipment and to be able to improve the riders and improve their speed and their endurance when they haven't got the facilities that the that the bigger teams have no and also um keeping a rider when if if you do have a young rider and you develop them and, and you bring them along and then somebody else comes and buys them yeah there's nothing you can do about it i, I do wonder if that will ever be addressed so ef make great use of social media to share their videos how do you think the social media and video storytelling has impacted the way cycling is viewed and shown to the outside world? I think cycling's done quite well from it because cycling is a sport that looks great, and it's it, a lot of it's about the aesthetic, you know, how it, how it looks. Um, and teams have got much better at making much better content. Um, mm -hmm. It used to be quite boring and straightforward, but I think more and more teams are kind of switching on to the possibilities of what they can do. And cycling looks kind of flash and I think uh, looks cool. So 
I think it's uh, it, it's done it's done it's done well for cycling. How has twenty twenty been for you? Twenty uh, twenty was extremely odd and tough year. I think I think for everybody who's who works in in cycling or, or is a cyclist, everybody's always for their whole life been working towards you know the next race or the next goal or always had a forward kind of trajectory and that all went out the window and all changed and then we didn't know if we're going to race again or what was going to happen there was a lot of uncertainty for a long time and as in my role it was quite hard to manage the uncertainty of all the riders without knowing anything myself because my job should be to keep people calm and try and make sure they're okay but actually I don't really know you know, for most of the year, I didn't really know what was going to happen myself, which was quite yeah. Um, so it, it, it was a tough year. In the end, the racing was really great that we did do. Um, I went to the Tour again, and, and that was successful for us, and then went to the Ardennes, and then that was good. So it was, a, it was a funny year. It was a very funny year. It was good to see some racing, though, in the calendar. And I'm glad, I think a lot of people were glad to see it because it's been something that they can watching in this weird time when they don't have much much else to do and it's nice to see something that you love is still is still happening yeah that's and it is like I've, I've had a few people say that to me and it is nice to know that because you can think when you're in the middle of all that like why are we doing this and a lot of people do say the same you know it was great to have it good to know yeah and we also saw that some of the races could actually happen in different times of year and it made it a bit interesting to see how the riders rode these races in a colder sort of time of year when it was more going into the winter yeah i mean if you look at like when the giro was and how good the race was all the same for tour spain i thought i thought it was a it was really great to see that so it it can work um which kind of makes me encouraged for this year because i think that you know if we have to we know we can adapt things what are your hopes for 2021? I mean, I hope, um, firstly, I hope that by you know, the end of the year, everything starts to unlock. Um, you know, I hope that it goes, Europe goes through summer and with a combination with the vaccine by the end of it, um, we can you know, look to the following year with some sort of certainty because I don't think there's going to be much certainty this year. I really hope that the key events go ahead um, and things get better. I think the first part of the year is going to be very challenging with a lot of cancellations and a lot of changes. Um, and I hope, I just hope everybody gets enough opportunity. So especially for the riders to race properly, to keep things going for, um, you know, and then we can look to the future with, you know, like I said, some sort of certainty, because I don't think there'll be much this year. But if this year is the year that gets us through to a, a solid year in 2022, then that would be something to hope for. Definitely. What sort of riding do you do now? Um, I, I, I ride quite, 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 quite a bit now. Um, I stopped riding when I finished racing because I was like really sick of it and just a bit burned out with everything. Um, but in the last few years, I've, I've really come back to riding. Um, I've got cross bike and mountain bike, road bike, and I do um, as much of different stuff as I can. Um, I ride in Melbourne, I ride in a lot of groups. So there's a lot of bunches that go out early in the morning to avoid the heat um, and uh, yeah as much as I can going to do a race tomorrow which is fun um, just enjoying it when you're on training camps do you ride with the team 
sometimes, but not that often because I would have to have a, a bike there. I don't want to travel with my own bike because I don't like traveling with a bike. And the mechanics don't love it if you uh, use one of the riders bikes, obviously, because it gives them more work to do. Um, but I have found like when I, when I can, it, it gives you like a nice block of time with the riders when you can sort of chat and open up a bit more, um, which can be really useful. So when the team used to come to Australia and I was close to my house here, I'd have my bike. So I'd ride with the guys between races, um, but not on the, uh, not, not on the long days or the hard days or anything like that. I know some guys do, and some guys get up, some sports directors will get up at five o'clock in the morning every day at the Tour de France and go and ride. And that's, uh, I think uh, I like my sleep a bit too much for that. What do you think was your favourite race to compete in? Um, I'd probably say um, the favourite one that I did would be Liège West Liège. What has been your most memorable moment as a DS? Um, I would say um, probably uh, winning tour stage last year with Danny Martinez. Cool. Can you actually tell me a bit about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, that was just uh, one of the days when it took forever for the breakaway to go. Um, and we ended up, we had one rider in the breakaway. And then Hugh and Danny jumped across to it. So we ended up with three guys in the break. There was two from Bora, three of us. And it took a long time for the break to go. And then once it was gone, it was like, right, this is definitely the winning break. And then it's like, do we have a, a winner in here? And we've kind of seen how well Danny was going when he jumped across to the break kind of between Danny or Hugh we also had Nielsen there we knew we had good guys for the final and then it, we sort of played the game a bit and Nielsen attacked first and we ended up almost on the back foot but Danny basically ended up with the two guys from Bora and I think about six k's to go I was behind him and he just caught uh, I can't remember Camera, I think and caught Shackman, and basically there was a moment, big six k's to go, when I, I knew that he was going to win because he was he was so good, and it was honestly the calmest time I've ever had in a team car because it's like okay, we're definitely going to win this. I'm just going to sit here and soak it up. Um, that was that was pretty cool. Do you prefer Grand Tours, Classics, or Stage Races? Um, as a DS, I think uh, probably my, like I probably like the Ardennes Classics the most. Because we have 10 days, um, three races, the recons, um, every stays have got a nice hotel. And just, you don't have all the parts. Like in a, in a Grand Tour, there's a lot of moving. Driving to the start, transfer from the finish, late dinners. That gets pretty tiring. But the classics are kind of in one place. And uh, they're amazing races too. So, Who is your favourite current rider? Uh, that's actually really uh, that's a tricky one. I don't know if I have, if I have one. I, um, uh, the thing is, outside of my team, um, and I can only like the guys in my team. I, I always judge by like how how they are to work with. So taking that aside and looking at as a fan, but not including my own team, I realised that because they're all rivals for my guys, actually, uh, I, I struggle to like so, <laughs> as riders because um, it normally means you know if they're doing well, then we're getting beaten. I would say that um, like one of the nicest like wins I saw from a guy from another team was Teo Giro. I've known Teo since he was sort of 15 or 16. And I was watching the Giro and obviously I saw how well he was going early in the race. I'm like, wow, like he looked super cool and he looked, you know, great on his bike and he was 
you know, he, he, he is a cool kid and he's a great guy. So that would be, uh, you know, his win there was like really, really cool. So if I'd pick one, I'd, I'd, I'd go to Terry. Yeah, that, that win was really cool. <laughs> Who's your favourite rider of all time? Um, you're going to have to definitely look this one up. It's a guy called Andre Chmiel, um, who is a, he was Moldovan and then he was Ukrainian and then he was Russian and then he was Belgian. And he raced in the late 90s. And when I was 12 or 14, he was my hero. I think, I mean, as, as you get older, that gets a lot less important um, because you just change and, you know. But that, that's the person who, when I, when I was at like, that really impressionable time, was my absolute hero. He won Paris-Roubaix and he won Flanders, Paris Tours, um, Never wore sunglasses, so you could always see his face, which was cool. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look him up. <laughs> What's your favourite classics race? Um, I mean, to watch Paris-Roubaix, definitely. Um, yeah, it's really cool. You know, I have a special sort of affinity with Liège. Um, it, it, it's a race that I, I rode, and as a DS, I've always had some like really good results there. We got second with Mike Woods in 2018. And that's always, uh, yeah, that, that, that's always got a little bit of, uh, a little bit special for me as well. What about your favourite Grand Tour? Um, I, I'd go for the, uh, I'd go for the Tour um, mm-hmm. because it, it can be big and, and stressful, but, you know, it is the, it is the big one. Favourite stage race? Uh, I really enjoy the Tour of Basque Country. Um, mm. I really like it in the Basque Country and there's some, yeah, it, it's a tough race. It's it's nicely organised, and we have a sports director who's from the Basque Country, um, so he always takes us out to some nice restaurants. So, um, which do you think is harder, being a rider or being a DS? Uh, being a rider, hands down. Um, being a DS is you know you, you finish the day and you're, you're really tired mentally, um, and um, it's exhausting, and there's a lot that goes into it, but. The, the physical effort you put in as a rider is it's it's like nothing else what's her advice for young riders i think my advice would be that um not to rush in anything um it can be really tempting when you're young to always want to get to the next thing and if you don't get there you can get frustrated but actually the people that i saw do really well um over like a, a long space of time were the people that were much much calmer and, and kept going and, and didn't panic, just had their kind of where they wanted to be and they, they just moved there step by step. Um, and if you try and jump up or whatever, it just, or you get frustrated, then it, it's, uh, you let yourself down. So do you get back to Cornwall much and what do you miss about it? Um, I get back to Cornwall a few times. So I live in Bristol during the racing season um, and my parents still live in Cornwall. So I try and get down there a few times a year. I mean, I, I miss, I miss about Cornwall. Um, I miss it being constantly uh, wet and windy. <laughs> and, um, no, I mean, I love it down there. I love the coast. I, I, I do, but just the, you know, the life down there and the places and I, I miss that, but I'm not a big misser of stuff. I, I know it's there. If, if I want to go there, I can go there. I don't get there enough, probably. So you've just jumped into the team car and you're about to follow the team in a race. What's on your playlist to get you motivated? 
Uh, yeah. So it's a funny one. I never used to listen to music ever in a team car. Um, and then a few years ago, I was in a team car with my DS and just puts the radio on. I was like, oh, like, yeah, but like, you know, nothing's going to happen for you. You can still hear the rider radio and stuff. Actually, it, it can be quite helpful when you've got a long day, 200 Ks, and there's one rider away in the breakaway. You know what's going to happen to have a little bit of music to distract you so you can be focused later on. Um, but what do I listen to in the car? I listen to Arcade Fire in the car quite a lot um, because they've got a good balance. You generally need to make sure you keep the mechanic happy. So nothing, nothing too, uh, too offensive. So I've come with that with Arcade Fire. Thank you for joining me today, Tom. No problem. Pleasure. Thank you so much to everybody who has supported my podcast. And remember that if you enjoyed this episode or any of my other episodes, then make sure to share it with your friends. See you on the bike.